0: This Easter morning, we're going to be looking at uh, the Gospel of Luke and Luke's account of the resurrection of Jesus as found in Luke 24. Um, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Luke, he was one of the early church leaders. He was a traveling companion of Paul, uh, a physician and a historian, and he wrote an account based on the eyewitness accounts of those who traveled with Jesus and made sure in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke and the and, and the sequel, Acts, Um, to make sure that we knew that what he was writing was a historical account based on the eyewitnesses. And this morning I'm going to be focusing especially on the passage of two disciples on the road to a place called Emmaus uh, and their interaction with Jesus. But I want to begin at verse 1 just so that we read the uh, resurrection account. So Luke chapter 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Remember how he told you when, while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, "'How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken.' Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. And so he went in to stay with them. While he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us? While he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. This is God's word. Let me pray before we continue. Father, we pray that you would please open our ears to hear what you have to say. Open our hearts to receive and accept this word. Transform us by your Holy Spirit. Fill us this morning with faith, with hope, with joy, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So in this passage, we've got two of Jesus' disciples, one named Cleopas, the other one's unnamed, and they're walking on the road to a place called Emmaus, and Jesus walks along with them all of a sudden, but they are kept from recognizing him, it says, and I think this passage is great in helping us to understand some of the barriers there are to belief in Jesus. I'm going to use this passage to talk about three barriers there are to belief in Jesus, and then two clues that we see in this passage to belief in Jesus, and then one step to belief. So I'm going to begin just by looking at some of the barriers we see in this passage to belief in Jesus. And The first, I would say, is this, the hiddenness barrier the hiddenness barrier. It begins, it says, that they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. There was something about Jesus that was hidden from their sight, and I don't think it was that Jesus had completely changed so much that they couldn't recognize him. There's something, I think, supernatural that God was doing to prevent them from understanding that this was Jesus, because I think Their inability to recognize Jesus, the hiddenness thing, is consistent with what we read in the Bible. And we just went through 2 Corinthians. For those of you who uh, were part of that sermon series may remember some of these passages and how there's a hiddenness to God, to knowing God. In 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, let me share a couple passages where Paul uses the term the veil to describe it. He says, we're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. Who is the spirit and then the next chapter he says this and even if our gospel is veiled it is veiled to those who are perishing the god of this age that satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of christ who is the image of god it's kind of frightening this passage He's saying for those who don't believe in Jesus, those who don't know Jesus, it's not just that intellectually they have an issue, that they can't you know, buy the arguments or anything like that. He says basically what's going on is something more supernatural than that, something more spiritual than that, that Satan has veiled their heart, so to so to speak, that they can't see the gospel of the glory. They don't see the glory of Jesus. There's something hidden about God to them. It's as if Jesus... Is walking alongside them all along, that he is God is the glory of God's all around them, but they cannot see it. It's veiled to those who are perishing. And this is true, I would dare say, for some of you, even who are sitting out here right now, who are listening to me, from wherever you're listening. For some of you, you you just don't get it. Maybe you come to church and you just look around, you're like, I don't get it. Why are these people like raising their hands and singing? They all seem to be into this Jesus thing, and for me, like I just don't get it. I don't buy the arguments. I don't, I don't understand what's so amazing about this, this thing that people believe. And I want to challenge you to consider that what this passage is saying is that there is a hiddenness to God. There is, as it is, a veil that is separating you from being able to see the glory of the gospel, to be able to see Jesus, to be able to see the glory of God. That there is an enemy who has veiled blinded the minds, it says, of unbelievers so they cannot see the gospel of the glory of God. My own life story, I came to know Jesus at age 18 and having a before and after, I can look back and I can say confidently that there was something supernatural that happened. That that day that I knelt by my bed at Yukon in the Buckley dormitory and said, God, I know where I belong and it's with you, there was something supernatural that happened. It wasn't like the angel started to sing over me and I all of a sudden like saw a bright light or anything. But from that day forward, something was different. There was this desire to know God that had not been there before. That the Bible all of a sudden came alive and it was speaking to me in a way that before it had just been this dry, meaningless book. That there was a desire to worship, to spend time with other Christians that I'd never had before. That I wanted to know more and more, as much as I could, about God. And it wasn't because someone taught me that. It wasn't because someone told me what I needed to do. It was as if something had happened, something supernatural, that where there was blindness, all of a sudden now I was seeing things clearly, seeing myself, seeing the world in a whole different way. There's a hiddenness to God. Even when he's walking alongside you, even when he's all around you, there's a hiddenness, that there's something supernatural that needs to happen in order to open your eyes to see him. It's like the blind man who was healed by Jesus in 925. The religious leaders ask him about Jesus, and he says this. this all I know is one, one thing I do know. I was blind, and now I see. He's like, I don't know who this Jesus is. I don't know much about him. All I know is that I was blind, and now I see. So do you understand what I'm talking about. Do you know God in that way? Have you experienced and understood the glory of God? Or is there a hiddenness still? Do you feel like you just don't get it? If that is you, I want to encourage you this morning to pray and ask God to lift that veil. Lift the veil that you might see him, see the glory of God. This is what Paul prayed in Ephesians 1, 17 to 19. I want to pray this over you. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the glorious Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. You didn't know your heart has eyes, did you? He uses this metaphor to say that there's a way of seeing God with our hearts And he prays that the eyes of their hearts might be enlightened, that they might be open, that they might see the gospel, the glory of God. So I want to encourage you this morning, if that is you, pray and ask God to lift that veil that you might see the glory of God. The second barrier that we see in this passage, not only the hiddenness barrier, but the expectation barrier. Verse 17, Jesus asks them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast, and one of them named Cleopas asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem, and you do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. Notice this last line now. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. So they kind of betray their expectations there, that their expectation of this Jesus was that he was the Messiah who had come in, and because Israel was under Roman oppression, he was going to come in and he was going to overthrow Rome. He was going to be this great military hero who was going to restore Israel to its former glory. And then he died. And they're crushed because their expectations of who God was, of who Jesus was, what he was going to do, The expectations were not met. He died, and so they had given up. They couldn't see Jesus. They couldn't understand what God was doing because they had expectations of what God was like and what he was going to do and what the Messiah was going to be like and what the Messiah was going to do, and it didn't happen the way they had expected. Can I challenge you again to consider that one of the expectations that you may have to believe I'm sorry, one of the barriers you may have to belief is this expectation barrier. One of the barriers you may have to belief is that you have certain expectations that you have placed on God. Expectations of what God should be like, how he should act. And when he does not live up to those expectations, does not act the way you think a God should act, you reject him, you are disillusioned, you're disappointed, you turn away from faith because of the expectation barrier. Like those disciples, you thought God should act a certain way, and then he didn't. The most common time this happens in our lives is when something bad happens, right? When someone we love dies. When the disease or the illness that we're praying about doesn't turn around. When the marriage that we are really praying for God to restore does not turn around. When we lose the job, and then we lose our house. When the prayers go unanswered. And we don't understand how a good God could allow those things to happen because we think if we were God, we would know how to do this better than he does. We know we would make better choices. We would follow through on things the way God does not. There's expectations that we place on God, and when he does not meet those expectations, we get disillusioned. We get disappointed. We sometimes reject him. But can I encourage you that God has a much bigger picture in mind, a much longer view That just like those disciples walking on the road to Emmaus saying, we thought the Messiah was going to overthrow Rome and now he's dead. Maybe God has a bigger, grander, longer picture than you do. Maybe he's got something greater in mind. Isaiah 55, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I mean, Anyone who's a parent can relate to this. You know, most children that I know would love to have candy and ice cream every day for every meal. To just spend every single moment on electronics in front of a screen. They don't understand why it's important to do their homework or to practice their instruments or clean their rooms or any of that stuff. To eat their vegetables. They've got their idea of what the good life is. And when parents don't, you know, meet those expectations, They think the parents are cruel. God is infinitely more than this. Can I encourage you this morning? If you look back at your life, you may see that the expectations you have placed on God have caused you to get disillusioned, have caused you to reject him because you expect God to act a certain way. And he's got a much bigger, grander, longer view in mind than yours As Elizabeth Elliot put it, God is God, and because he is God, he is worthy of my trust and obedience, and I will find rest nowhere but in his holy will that is unspeakably beyond my largest notion of what he is up to. If this relates to you, can I encourage you, come to the Bible with an open mind, come to church with an open mind. This year, we have groups that are reading through the Bible, and you're welcome, even though it's April, to join one of those groups. You can find information on our our webpage or website about that. We're reading through, coming to the, the, the Bible to understand who God is, not to place our expectations on him, but to understand who the Bible reveals him to be. Can I encourage you, lay down your expectations of how God should act so that you might trust in him, learn who he really is. So that's two of the barriers, the hiddenness barrier and the expectation barrier. The third barrier in this passage is the supernatural barrier. They're talking to Jesus. They say, what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. Essentially, the disciples are saying, okay, these women are telling us some miraculous stories about a a missing body, about visions of angels, about a dead man rising again, and we're having a hard time wrapping our head around this and believing it. Certainly, one of the barriers that keeps people from believing and might keep you from believing is this supernatural element. Around the world, there are many societies, many cultures, where they just know that the supernatural is real. But in our scientific culture... Most people, a lot of people, have a lot harder of a time believing that there is supernatural, that these sort of supernatural things happen, that there is a spiritual realm. But here's the thing. Some people, a lot of people in our culture, are guilty of what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. It's a great term. He said many people are guilty of chronological snobbery. In other words, they look back at people 2,000 years ago and they say, oh, they were just gullible people back then. They were people who would believe that someone would rise from the dead. We, however, are scientifically minded. We know that people don't rise again from the dead. He says nothing's changed as far as 2,000 years ago. People did not believe that someone could rise from the dead. They weren't gullible. They weren't stupid back then. In fact, if you understand Jesus' culture, you understand, first of all, the disciples were preaching this message to Jews who did not believe that anyone would rise from the dead in the middle of history. They believed that there would be a resurrection. Some of them believed in the resurrection. Those who did believe there would be a resurrection at the end of time, a general resurrection at the end of time. They didn't believe that someone could rise from the dead in the middle of history. And then they proclaimed this message to the Greeks, to the Romans. They believed that the body was corrupt, that the point of death was to escape the corrupt body. That to be resurrected into a body again, that wasn't anything that anyone would, would find desirable. You want to escape the body. So, for them to proclaim Jesus rose again bodily, they'd be like, well, why is that a good thing? Why do we want to live in the body again? Why do we want to be raised again and have a body? We want to escape the body. The point being, this is a message that didn't make sense to the Jews. It didn't make sense to the Greeks, to the Romans. It was foolishness to both of them. It would not have caught on if they had made up this account. It wouldn't have caught on if they had, you know, were, were just deceived and they're like, hey, Jesus rose from the dead. No one would have believed them unless it actually happened. The reason that so many people don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead is because of this supernatural element. It's not because there isn't enough evidence. There's all kinds of historical evidence to point to. Just a few of them I'll just throw up there. First, you had the skeptical audience that I just mentioned. The Jews and the Greeks, they wouldn't have believed that someone rose from the dead. Particularly the Jews, as they say, this Jesus is Lord, is God. Proclaiming that to a people who believe that there's no God but Yahweh would have been blasphemy. But here they are saying, this Jesus is Lord and God. The living eyewitnesses. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, writing about the resurrection, says, he appeared to all these people and even to 500 who are still alive that you can talk to. We're writing this during the time period of the eyewitnesses. This is not a game of telephone, like so many atheists like to believe, passed down through generations. Who knows what really happened? This is things that were written down based on eyewitness accounts during the lifetime of the eyewitnesses so they could be quality control. They could make sure that it was accurate. The missing body, of course, this proclamation from the beginning in Acts of Jesus risen from the dead. All they needed to do was produce a body and say, yeah, no, he didn't rise from the dead. Here's the body to prove it. But there was no body because the body was missing. He was not dead. He was alive. What about the other messiahs? There were, in those days, all kinds of other people who claimed to be messiahs, claimed to be sent from God. You know what happened to them? You don't remember any of them, do you? Because they died, and their followers went away, just like Jesus' followers had gone away after Jesus died. But he rose again, and that's why we have the church. That's why we have Christianity because he wasn't just a dead messiah he rose again look at the transformed disciples again they had gone from cowards denying that they even knew jesus they gave up when he was dead they went back fishing and to do whatever and all of a sudden they are transformed into people who are willing to suffer and die for their faith they're not afraid anymore They're going to go out and proclaim boldly that Christ is risen from the dead, that he has conquered sin and death, that the gospel proclaims that there is salvation in Jesus, and they're going to proclaim it even though they're going to get thrown into prison, even if they're going to get killed. How do you explain that kind of transformation apart from the risen Jesus? And then again, if they were making up this story, why would they... Paint this picture of themselves as cowards and have the first eyewitnesses be women because in those days, the testimony of women wasn't even valid in court. If you're making up the story, you would make yourself be the hero of the story. You wouldn't make yourself be this cowardly denier of Jesus. If you were going to be the early church leader, but they wrote it the way it happened, they were cowards. They were denying Jesus and running away. The women were the ones first to the tomb. That's what happened. They weren't afraid to write it as it happened because that's the truth. Jesus had died and risen from the dead. Those are the barriers that we see in this passage, the hiddenness barrier. For some of you, the barrier is that even though God is all around you, you can't see because there's this veil that is covering your eyes that you need to pray that God would lift the veil that you would see him. For some of you, it's the expectations that God, the life, life is not gone as you had hoped, that God has not lived up to, the, to what you expected him to be, And that has kept you from believing. To some of you, it's the supernatural barrier that you just have a hard time believing in a resurrection. But there's two clues to belief in this passage that I want to look at. The first is this. All the stories point to Jesus. In verse 25, Jesus said to them, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Oh, to be a fly on the wall for that conversation. So Jesus, as he's walking along, they don't even know it's Jesus still, remember, but he opens the scriptures to them and basically from Genesis onwards, he shows them how the whole thing has been pointing to him. Let me give you a taste of what might have happened there. He says, remember Adam? In the garden, how he failed that test of obedience in the garden. Passed down the curse of his disobedience to us. Well, Jesus is the true and better Adam. He passed the test of obedience in the garden of Gethsemane. And he passes down his blessing of obedience to us. Remember after Adam and Eve fell into sin, how God told them that the serpent would bruise the heel of the woman's descendant. But that descendant would crush the serpent's head. Well, that descendant is Jesus who, even though he was bruised by the devil on that cross, will crush the devil forever. Remember Cain and Abel? How Abel was slain by his brother Cain, even though he was innocent, and how his blood cried out for his condemnation? Jesus is the true and better Abel, who was also slain, even though he was innocent. And his blood cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Remember Abraham, who answered the call of God, left the comfortable and familiar, to go to a new place that he did not know, to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who left the comfort of heaven to come to earth and to create a new people of God. Remember that covenant that God made with Abraham where he cut the pieces of the animals and then he, cut be- he passed between them and he declared that I will never fail you and even if you fail, I will take the penalty on myself. Jesus is God taking that penalty on himself. Remember Isaac, Abraham's son, offered up by his father on the mountain but saved by God as he provided instead that lamb? Jesus is the true and better Isaac, offered up by his father on the mountain, sacrificed for us all. Remember Jacob, asleep in the middle of nowhere, dreaming of a stairway that stretched from earth to heaven? Jesus is that stairway to heaven. He's heaven come down to earth, and he is how we go to heaven. Remember Jacob wrestling with God, taking the blow of justice. Jesus is the one to whom Jacob points, who took the Father's blow of justice, that we might receive grace. Remember Joseph ascended to the right hand of the king of Egypt, forgiving those who betrayed him, using his power to save them and the people of God. Jesus is the one to whom Joseph points, ascended to the right hand of God the king, forgiving those who betrayed him, using his power to save him. If you haven't noticed, we're only in Genesis. The whole thing points to him. What about Moses standing in the gap between God and the sinful people, mediating a new covenant? Jesus is the one to whom Moses points, standing in the gap between the Lord and the sinful people, mediating a new and better covenant. What about that rock of Moses in the wilderness, struck with the rod of God's justice to give the people water in the desert? That rock points to Jesus. Struck with the rod of God's justice to give the people living water. What about the Passover lamb? Innocent, slain, so that the angel of death would pass over the people of God. Jesus is the one to whom that lamb points. Innocent and slain so that the angel of death would pass over us. What about the manna, the bread from heaven, sent to the people in the wilderness so that people might live? Jesus is the one to whom that manna points, the bread from heaven. Come down to give us his body that we might have eternal life. What about the tabernacle, the temple, God dwelling in the midst of his people? Jesus is the true temple, Emmanuel, God with us, God dwelling in our midst. What about Job, the innocent sufferer who intercedes for his friends and saves them? Jesus is the one to whom Job points, the truly innocent sufferer who intercedes and saves us. What about David and his victory over Goliath? How his victory becomes our victory, his people's victory, even though they never lifted a stone themselves. Jesus is the one to whom David points, whose victory over Satan and death becomes our victory, even though we did nothing to deserve it. What about God's prophecy that Dave, one of David's descendants would sit on the throne forever? Jesus is that descendant, the son of David, reigning over an eternal kingdom. What about Psalm 22? The psalmist crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As evil men encircle him, pierce his hands and his feet, cast lots for his clothing. Jesus is the one that Psalm 22 is prophesying about, crying out from the cross as he takes our sins. What about Esther, risking the palace to save her people? Jesus is the one to whom Esther points, the one who gave up his heavenly palace and didn't just risk his life but gave his life to save us. What about Jonah being thrown out into the storm three days in the belly of the great fish before being brought back up so that the other sailors might be saved? Jonah points us to Jesus, thrown out into the storm of God's justice three days in the grave before rising again so that we might be saved. What about Daniel seeing a vision of the Son of Man who will be given authority by the Eternal Father to rule over the nations? That Son of Man is Jesus The one who's been given all authority. What about the son who will be born, prophesied by Isaiah, who will carry the shoulders of the governments, on his shoulders, the governments of this world, whose name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace? What about the one of whom Isaiah writes that the virgin will conceive and be with child, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us? What about the prophecy in Micah that a child will be born in Bethlehem who will be the ruler over Israel? What about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 who will die for the sins of the nations? Are you getting the picture? Can you imagine Jesus saying, this whole thing has been pointing to Jesus? It's not just a collection of random stories or inspirational sayings. That's not what the Bible is. It is one grand meta narrative, one grand story about God saving sinful humanity. All of these stories point to the Messiah, to Jesus. It's like one of those movies, you know, like those movies like The Sixth Sense or The Usual Suspects, one of those movies where you see the ending and all of a sudden it changes how you saw the whole movie. Everything that came before it, all of a sudden you see in a different light. Because that's what the resurrection is. You see Jesus dying and rising again and all of a sudden the whole Old Testament changes from a collection of stories to one grand story pointing to Jesus. All the stories point to him. And it's not just about the Bible. All of the stories point to him, even in our world today. There's an essay written by J.R.R. Tolkien, creator of Lord of the Rings, on fairy stories. He wrote this about the resurrection. He says, There's no tale ever told that men would rather find was true, and none which so many skeptical men have accepted as true on its own merits. He writes in that essay how the Easter story, resurrection, is the story to which all the fairy stories, the fairy tales, all the stories point. Think about it. The movies that people want to see aren't the ones full of gritty reality where the bad guys win in the end and people die. I mean, those aren't the ones that people want to go and see for the most part. People want to go and see movies where good triumphs over evil where victory is snatched out of the jaws of defeat, where an act of sacrificial heroism saves the day, where death is not the end, where love is eternal, where there's a happy ever after. Am I right? Those are the stories that inspire. Those are the stories that by the end you say, oh, that was such a good story. Because good triumphed over evil. Death was not the end. Love was eternal. Victory was snatched out of the jaws of defeat. There's a happy ever after. Why are those the stories that we are drawn to? Because our hearts are longing for that to be reality. Our hearts are longing for death to not be the end, for justice to prevail, for good to triumph over evil, for there to be a happy ever after. All the stories point to this story. All the roads lead to the gospel and find their fulfillment here in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because what does the death and resurrection mean? It means that good has triumphed over evil. Death has been defeated. Victory has been snatched out of the jaws of defeat. An act of sacrificial heroism has saved the day. Love is eternal. Death is not the end. The first clue to belief is all the stories point to Jesus, and the second is very much related. Our hearts are longing for him. Finishing that reading, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. And so he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They say as we heard Jesus talk and share how everything pointed to him, they said, weren't our hearts burning within us? Weren't we just longing for this to be true? How did you feel as I was sharing all those stories, not just from the Bible, but also the stories that captivate our imagination? Do you not long for those stories to be true? Not to be like, well, those are just the movies. You know, Those are just, in the stories, yes, we know there's always the happy ever after in the story and love is eternal and the good guys win, but that's not the way it is in life. You know, In real life, it just doesn't go that way. Don't you long for that to be true? Despite all the evil and discouragement that comes from this world, to believe and to know that this is true. It's because our hearts were created for eternity. Ecclesiastes 3:11 says, "He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end." There is something in our hearts that we can't deny that longs for this to be true because God has placed that longing in our hearts. Think about it. When you come to a funeral, think about the last time you were at a funeral of someone you loved. Do you find yourself at peace with that being the end? Or does something inside you rage against it and say, this is wrong? This is wrong. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Something in you rage against that. Say, it was not meant to be this way. Death cannot win. This cannot be the end. The grave can't have the final word. That longing in your heart, it's not an accident. God has placed that in your heart because death is not the end. Because love is eternal, as John said, as Jesus said in John 11, 25 to twenty six, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And as the writer of Hebrews put it, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy. Him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Can you see? You read this. It's like this is the story to which all the stories point. The hero of all heroes who came into this world to destroy the enemy of all enemies, the devil, to free those who were held in slavery by their fear of death. This is the story to which all the stories point. That longing in your heart is there because God has placed it there, because it's true. The grave is not the end. Love does last forever. He rose from the dead to prove it. What about the longing for justice? I mean, you look all around this world and everyone is crying out for justice, trying to figure out what justice is and how to find it and how to get it. What about that longing that good would triumph over evil, that everything would be made right, there'd be no more suffering, no more oppression, none of that. The resurrection tells us that one day justice will prevail, that good will win, that evil will be destroyed. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He says, this is the end. The In the end, evil, death, suffering, sin, it's all destroyed. Everything's made new. Good has triumphed over evil and there will be justice forever. The longing that we have for justice is because God has placed it there. And one day it will be ours What about the longing we have for a life that matters? To have purpose. To feel like our lives are not meaningless. We're not just wasting time here until we die. But that we are actually living for something that matters beyond this grave. That we won't just be gone and forgotten when we die. Again, he has put that in our hearts. That is a longing that is there. Because he has placed it there. 1 Corinthians 15-58. At the end of this long chapter on the resurrection, Paul concludes by saying, therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. He ends by applying the resurrection to us and saying, because Christ rose from the dead, we will also rise from the dead and live forever. And because of that, we know that what we do here matters eternally. Everything we do in the name of the Lord matters eternally. There is no meaningless existence. Our lives are not purposeless. Matthew 10, 42, Jesus says, If anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. Amen? Every little thing that you do in the name of God, every act of kindness that you do for others, he says, matters eternally that longing in your heart to feel like what you do matters, that you're not just spinning your wheels until you die, wasting your time. It's because God has put that in your heart, a longing, this burning to live a life of significance. And the resurrection means that it is significant. Everything you do matters eternally. There's many other longings, but those three I think are so valuable. The longing that death is not the end. The longing for justice, the longing that our lives would matter eternally. So I want to end with one step to belief. Believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead to defeat sin and death. I hope that your heart is burning within you, and it's not just from whatever you ate for breakfast, but that your heart is burning within you as you listen to these stories and say, could this be true? God, may this be true that all of the stories culminate in this story. They all point to this, the hero of all heroes who defeated the enemy of all enemies to free us, to conquer death, that love would prevail forever and ever. How does your story become part of his story become part of this story? It's to put your faith in Jesus to turn from your own sinful, self-centered way of life, to confess that to him and put your faith in Jesus to turn to him. Again, on that road to Emmaus, Jesus was there hiding in plain sight, and they had no idea. And for many of you, it's the way your life has been. God has been there all along. God has been protecting you all along. God has been there with you all along, every step of the way. And maybe you were just blind and never saw it because that veil was hiding your heart from seeing him. This morning, pray that God would lift that veil, that you would see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you would come to know him, know that all of these stories are true. They culminate in Jesus. Paul writes in Romans ten nine through 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. That word saved means saved from sin, saved from eternal separation from God. That you would live forever where there will be no more suffering or death. That word justified means that you're declared not guilty. Everything you've ever done is just put on Jesus and you're right with God. If you don't know God, then let's pray this together. I encourage you. And it's not magic words, but it is about your heart. Let's pray this. Jesus, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. I believe that in you is found eternal life, life to the full. I believe that apart from faith in you, I will die in my sins, separated from God for all eternity. But I believe that you love me so much that you died on the cross in my place, taking the penalty for my sin and that you rose from the grave, conquering death. I turn from my sinful, self-centered way of life, and I believe in you as my Savior and Lord. Amen.